Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Cobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Rupert Brown, CTO at Evidology, a company that specialises in advising clients on regulatory compliance. Rupert, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. Now, we're going to talk about regtech, and regtech is one of those what I call portmanteau words. It packs an awful lot into very little. Uh, now, on top of regtech, we have souptech. Uh, am I right to think that regtech comes souptech is kind of fragmenting into its various parts? We have uh, transaction reporting, we have market surveillance, we have KYC, AML, CFT, sanction screening. We've got uh, data and privacy protection, notably here in Europe through, through GDPR. We've got cybersecurity, we've got operational resilience. Is it sensible for us to uh, start thinking of regtech as a series of sub-disciplines as opposed to a single overarching discipline? Yes, I think that, that's probably the right answer, but I don't think we've succeeded yet in, in categorizing that market well. Um, my own view is that when you look at the, if you were to take the volume of sort of advertising and PR that is put out there by various companies, um, we're in a bit of a cul-de-sac where it is mostly transaction reporting, KYC and a bit of surveillance. And, and actually that's a very small part of RegTech. Uh, and we actually need to have a, a discussion as an industry about what where the boundaries of RegTech are. You talked about things like cybersecurity. Now, the actual technology of cybersecurity isn't regtech. The way it's implemented and governed is. So, so that there's a very fine line there and, and drawing that is, is hard to do. Um, and we have to be very careful about um, not uh, alienating our audience in that space. Mm -hmm. But if you take a subject like operational resilience, you know, the, the central banks and the FCA uh, here in the UK, for example, don't want banks or or service providers to fall over and therefore they're expected to perform to certain standards if they outsource something they're meant to look at it very carefully and monitor it very carefully to make sure they're not putting client money at risk for example so you know reg tech has a you know it is a very large and amorphous thing uh, i for example do you do you distinguish in your work between reg tech and soup tech um, not particularly. Um, we're very focused on what the words say in a regulation and how you go about building controls to make sure that you satisfy those words and how you evidence that the controls are available. I think when you talk about things like resilience, because again, that's a very broad word, um, you, you know, dealing as we are you know, in the heart of the pandemic now, being resilient against a pandemic is very different to being resilient against a power cut or a terrorist attack. Um, I think there's a, an area of regulation that is is outside almost of reg tech and it's almost design regulation that's again another big subject is my my family background is from construction my grandfather was a builder my parents were both architects to be an architect you've got a five-year course that you have to do to become an architect so the regulation of design understanding what a design is and how that's regulated has really significant implications for those that then have to use that design. Now, we, we're used to having houses that don't fall down, although Grenfell has taught us some um, very hard lessons about houses that don't catch fire. 
Um, but clearly we have to have the same design controls when it comes to our money, uh, whether we fly in an aeroplane, get on a train, all of these things are regulated design activities. And, and whether that's reg tech as the market knows it or a broader form of regulation um, has yet to be addressed. Mm -hmm. Well, with that, I wanted to get too philosophical here. You have these risks which are arising in, in the financial marketplace. You have regulators who are trying to address those risks by, as you say, designing regulations to mitigate them or hopefully eliminate them in some cases. And on the other hand, you've got this horde of, uh, of startups and established companies in the reg tech marketplace. And as you, as you look at that marketplace, how well do you think the reg tech industry, if I might call it that, how well adapted are the products and services they're offering to what financial institutions actually need? Is the reg tech industry properly structured to solve particular problems or to solve problems in general? Is it, is it meeting the needs of its potential clients or does it need to redesign itself? I think the answer is yes and no. I think it depends on the maturity of the companies um, that you look at in that portfolio. There are some, there are some very mature companies where people have come out of businesses because they have seen an opportunity. So heads of business business groups within a bank or within an insurance company, those kind of people have come out of, of where they were working and spotted an opportunity. And I would argue most of the, the innovations we've seen in payments have come from there. They're not technological things. They're mostly business model things. So, so those, I would say, are very mature. They understand the restrictions of what they're doing. At the opposite end of the spectrum, you, you see this sort of what I call the hackathon gang, where you have people who have a particular niche technology skill. And I would say that, you know, very much in the cryptocurrency space and some of that kind of thing. Um, and maybe 10 years ago, it was in the messaging middleware space, the low latency trading. So where it was a, a very niche vertical skill that was a technical opportunity because they were the only people who knew how to do it or they had something that was 10 times faster than the opposition. Um, I think those companies will die out, but there is the opportunity for people who've come from perhaps more of a legal and a general counsel space to get into the reg tech sector. And I think those people are actually missing at the moment in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. Can I give you a, a specific example? Over the last 20 years, the onus on banks, asset managers, anyone who's, who's onboarding clients has been to run very rigorous, know your clients, anti-money laundering, countering the finance of chairman, terrorism, sanction screening checks on anybody who becomes a, a client of the firm. And these are very high level principles from the Financial Action Task Force. But they have imposed a massive cost on every financial institution. And by massive, I mean you know, tens if not hundreds of billions of dollars, if you look at this on a, on a global scale. Do you see out there a reg tech or a reg tech idea which could cut that cost back to something more reasonable? I'm afraid I don't at the moment. I see lots of people talking about KYC. Um, and then of course we had uh, the day before yesterday, the Capital One 
uh, fraud exposure, you know, where they knew the KYC actually worked. They knew who the criminals were. They just didn't monitor their activities. Um, and, that, and that is actually part of the problem. So we're back to this overloading of terms. KYC and AML are two different things. If you don't have KYC, you will get money laundering. So, so understanding that and being very precise is part of the problem. The other problem I see within the banks themselves is they're just not joined up, is that the part of the problem to solve things within a bank is you would need to take a very large chunk of a bank's activities out to fix KYC in a bank. Uh, I can give you some very concrete stories uh, from my own personal experience. My father died a year ago and we are still clearing up with the banks KYC issues where we had given them all the KYC information. They had even acknowledged it back to us and still they send us papers requesting information. Uh, it is quite staggering how poor all four of the major high street banks are in getting their KYC processes right. I must ask you this question because we, we, we love this idea at Future of Finance. Are you a believer in digital identities? Um, yes, but I'm not a believer that we have the right identity technologies now. And I would say I'm also a believer that we are going to have to have some sort of truce between the major Californian players who own most of our identities. We're still at the stage where everyone is jockeying for position. Microsoft have their set of identities, Google have theirs, Facebook have theirs. You know, who has the right to own my identity is, is the hard question. I think the technology is getting better and clearly we have scale but it's going to be where does it where does it when does it end up? Um, because clearly the UN couldn't do that at the moment. Do and that think, might be the best place. <laughs> do you think the regtech vendors are, are, are part of the problem here? If I look, we look back over the, the sort of re-regulation of the financial services industry since 2009, regulation's been a very large focus for financial institutions, but it's also been a tremendous business opportunity. Uh, for, for vendors and consultants and others. So every time a regulation came along, you know, we've been in the publishing industry for a long time now, we'd be inundated with people saying, well, I've got the solution to, uh, you know, to AIFMD or USITS5 or GDPR. Uh, do you think a lot of um, snake oil salesmen have been at work in the, in the reg tech industry offering quick and dirty solutions to actually what are much more complex internal problems or... I think it's, is, is regtech the author of its own misfortunes to some extent? Yeah, I'm not sure I call it snake oil, but I do think it's the um, if I have a hammer, everything looks like a nail problem. So if you think of all of the kind of transversal technologies that we've built really in the last, well, let's say 30 years since distributed systems came into being. Yeah. So, you know, we just talked about identity and things like that. We talked about messaging middleware. We talked about workflow. So all of these technologies exist that vendors like to purpose, repurpose. They like to message about to get into a sector. And, and I think that's where RegTech is as guilty as this rather nebulous umbrella that, yes, workflow is a RegTech enabler but it is not regtech itself. It's a bit, you know, it's like encryption. Strong encryption is important to transaction security and demonstrating, demonstrating that you have strong encryption and things like that is, is also part of the equation 
but we don't have the whole equation. And I think that's where we, we really struggle is all of these bits of software and technologies are useful, but you have to have the bigger view of how do you put them together to solve a problem? What's the real problem you're trying to solve? And in many cases, people don't actually read what the regulation says. Um, I could give you an example. We had somebody um, we were invited to pitch to who thought they knew an awful lot about GDPR, but couldn't understand the difference between a data controller and a data processor, which is the heart of GDPR. If you don't understand that distinction and you claim to be a practitioner in the space, then I'm sorry, you need to reread both what the regulation says and actually what the ICO's own guidance says. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you use the term workflows. Uh, does it make sense for a business to start looking at regulation as a series of workflows, what I might call a business process or a supply chain or a, or a value chain. And you've got these regulations coming in from the regulators at one end and you're producing some form of compliance uh, at the other end. Uh, but in between those two points, of course, you've got, uh, as you point out, all sorts of separate systems. Uh, you've got different corporate cultures and probably subcultures within a particular corporate culture. So does it make sense to think of of regulatory compliance as a business process. Is that a good way to think about making your firm compliant? It, it is in the abstract sense. And this is where this is where we have a major problem effectively in large corporations is workflow has been sold to us for a very long time. You know, the notion of how workflow works you know, goes back to the days when we first you know, started writing computer programs and, and drew flowcharts. Yes, we, we know how to do that. We taught that at school even when we, you know, when I first did programming, it was with a deck of cards courtesy of a timeshare at university when I was in the sixth form. Um, and we drew flowcharts. That was how we were taught to think about the problem. All right, it was adding up rows of numbers. It wasn't the complexity we have today. So the, the logical notion of workflow is right. The problem that you have inside large corporations is there is no dominant workflow system. There is no standard. And, it, and it's actually even worse than that. So if you look at every major platform, so think of something like Gloss as a settlements platform. Think of something like uh, Murex as a trading platform. Yeah, Each of those systems has its own workflow engine inside it. So what you're really doing is knitting together multiple pieces of workflow into a greater workflow. And, and people don't understand that they have so many workflow systems within their enterprise system. Um, in my days as an enterprise architect in banks, one of the biggest bum fights that we had was we were charged as the, the guardian of standards within the bank to make sure everyone used the same batch scheduling system. So typically it was auto sys or control M was the dominant thing. But so many people had their own little secret cron jobs on their Unix boxes, which the business had paid for. And they weren't going to go to this central IT function to behave. What right did we have to tell them? We didn't earn money for the bank. So, so actually the banks failed to achieve these standards where they have a single workflow platform that they can then actually leverage the value of. And this is where the real failing lies. So does it make better sense to start thinking of, of regulatory compliance as a, as a data management problem, managing these data flows, making them consistent with each other, 
so that you can run, I suppose, lots of separate regulatory compliance processes off a single set of data. And that single set of data might be applicable to other parts of the business you know, in the front, back or, or middle office. Is that, is that the way to go? I mean, you've talked about standards. Well, there are it, no standards, right? Well, this is the thing is you have to, you, you, it's, um, you have, it's a data management problem as well. Yeah, it's a data management and a technology standards problem. If you accept that you're going to have multiple standards, that's okay, provided you know how many there are. It's okay to have 10 standards. It's not okay to have 100 standards. Yeah. And we always used to joke in the architecture department that, you know, if we if we were given a budget, which we were never given much other than our own salary costs, we'd spend it on guns. Yeah. That actually you need people who are armed and have the means of frankly disciplinary action for non-standards yeah now in some some enlightened organizations actually came up with fining processes you know i'm aware that people have done that but they only lasted for the tenure of one cio so it's you know we've just seen you know donald trump leave the white house and everybody breathe a sigh of relief it was you know it's been the same amongst tenures of cios in in large organizations that people have bad habits and they like to go back to bad habits and, and you do need some, you know, not just mentally strong sheriffs, but they've got to have teeth with money. Mm-hmm. Now, the history of standards is not is not particularly encouraging. As you say, there, there's lots of them. Adoption is a problem. Enforcement is a problem. Is it better to start thinking about let's try and get uh, this is a conversation we had the other day with a, with a major custodian bank where actually they've in a sense, no longer thinking in terms of trying to impose data standards on, on clients to get to this consistent set of data. They're thinking, well, the more people that we, we service on our platform, the more obvious it will become to them that it's easier if our data can flow without interruption and in a consistent way. So you kind of evolve towards and converge upon a way of exchanging information as opposed to trying to impose it from on high through standards. Is that... Yeah, exactly. It, it's kind of the path of least resistance. So clearly becoming de facto is what you want. Yeah. Where it's why wouldn't you do it? Yeah. Rather, and, and the reasons that um, are reasons that a lot of standards have failed is they've been overburdensome. Um, you only have to think back to the days of the early forms of remote procedure call. Um, the DCE, ONC, RPC was between the Unix world and the, the Microsoft deck world was a huge fight and actually neither side won. Yeah. So if we look at things like Internet protocols, they won. Things like HTTP has won because it's cheap. Um, it works well. It's easy to program too. So there's no cost involved. And, and we got lucky because networks have got faster. So whilst it's actually quite inefficient and quite ugly, it doesn't matter because the network hardware has taken away the pain. Yeah. So it, the, the, the ease of adoption and the, and the, you know, the capacity to transmit has won. And, and that's how standards win in the end. Now, standards are not the, the, the only thing which is proving difficult in this area. Uh, regulations themselves are, are not static. They're living beasts. They, they keep changing. We've had we're on USITS 5 and looking forward to USITS 6 if it hasn't happened already. Then you've got litigation which goes on, you've got case law changing. How on earth should a regulated firm try and keep up 
with the evolution of regulation. I know we've got lots of vendors working in this space, which they subscribe to, but is there a, is there a better, more automated way of keeping up with the evolution of regulations that affect your business? So, so that's what we like to think about at Evidology Systems. That's, that's kind of our bread and butter, is how do we make regulations look like things that we're used to dealing with with change? And so the most common things that change that where our, you know, our heritage is from reference data programs and large scale systems development. Now, if you think about those things, we, we've talked already about data standards and integration of data for reference data. We've spent 30 years in banking getting to global client identifiers and stuff like that, QSIP, CDOLs. We have all these things. So that's we know how to do that side of data standardization. We've learned that lesson. What we're not very good with is change. And of course, regulations themselves are very wordy. They're, they're not they're not record oriented or field oriented things that we're used to in data, they're sentence and paragraph oriented things. So, so where we're coming from in Ovidology Systems is we think of uh, regulatory change like changing source code. And so our platform basically treats a regulation as a piece of source code and uses source code and source code change techniques to, to observe change and then push that change. And in fact, the whole, we actually push the whole regulatory text into the code that then runs as a control. So when you ask the question, why am I doing this? And that's, it's a question that people should ask more about the controls that their business runs, because actually they'd find that the controls aren't tied to regulations. We can actually say, we're doing this because the regulation says we must. When somebody comes knocking on your door and says, well, we think you should do this. We believe the regulation says this. We can say we did it this way because we made the following decisions and imposed the following controls based on legal advice and the text of the regulation. If you've got a better idea, we'll happily talk to you about that. But as you can see, we've done something. Yeah, we're not going to give you a lawyer or a PowerPoint deck to try and stall you. We're actually going to be able to show you why we did what we did. Mm -hmm. uh, now, I assume you were using source code as a metaphor rather than, than an actuality for, for, for how you do this. Uh, another term you've, you've used is, is, a, is agile, agile compliance. Now, generally, I, I associate that with management consultants trying to sell a financial services business a, a cloud or native cloud platform. What does, what does agile compliance actually mean here? in terms of a firm demonstrating to the regulators that it's compliant now and that it will remain compliant in the future. In other words, it's got controls and, uh, and processes in place. And I guess, thirdly, how does it help you keep up with the changing face and nature of regulations? Okay, so we're back to the, the source code and the, and the software build metaphor. So when I think about agile, I don't think about all of the things that people talk, you know, you've come across things like scrums and stand-up meetings. So I'm not thinking about that side of it. I'm thinking about the mechanical operation side of what we call continuous integration and build. So in other words, we have a change to a regulation which causes a control that may need to be redefined or needs to be reviewed because the regulation has changed. Somebody will then look at, somebody will be notified that the regulation has changed, so it's event driven. There is a change to this part of the regulation or there is a change to case law or there is a change to advice from general counsel. All of these things are glued together as a change event. Yeah? 
We then look at that, people make a decision whether to stick or twist, shall we say, on the control. Yes, the control's still good enough, or no, we're going to modify, let's say it's a transaction report, you know, we're going to add another field in there. So we'll make a change to the report, but they're all linked together in this build. So we're literally rebuilding the system that runs this because it's happening all the time. And then that's then pushed into change control for release. So we can see that the regulation initiated a change request. It's then released and then runs. So we're treating it exactly like we would do a program because what we've been able to do with our platform is, is virtualize or containerize a regulation. So it's not just this blurb and we don't care what language it's in. It's just a box with some interface points and, and the notification of change. So we've changed it from arbitrarily shaped data, a paragraph, to square shaped data like reference data. That, that's fundamentally what we do in very simple terms. Well, listening to you, and I think you were not speaking metaphorically, you're, you're describing continuing regulatory compliance as like writing a, a program. But as I, as I look you know, across at, at regulatory compliance across the financial services industry, which, which we cover, uh, it's pretty clear to me that, that digital transformation is whatever else is happening out there, digital transformation is not happening. Now, why is that? If this is programmable, as you say, what is preventing higher levels of automation in compliance? Is it because the regulators are not changing the way they operate? Is it because regulations are very hard to automate? I think you're saying they're not. Is it because the technology is not up to it? I think you're saying it is up to it. Is it because we have no standards? Why isn't digital transformation happening more widely if it is programmable in the way you've described? So, so what's missing at the moment in regulation is, you know, what I've talked about so far is, is a very atomic thing, you know, a piece of text turning into a set of actions that demonstrate compliance. And I've hinted that there, there are these other factors like case law or change in advice. Now, now, where does that come from? So it comes from a set of lawyers, a set of consultants, um, a particular legal case. And so what we don't have is this connected supply chain that comes from when the, you know, the EU issues a law, issues a law. What happens at the moment is that's pushed up onto their website and there are programs that sit and watch it all day looking for change. Yeah, there are a whole number of vendors who will sell you um, information about regulatory change. So they're, they're kind of like Reuters news, but they only go as far as saying, this is a news item about a regulatory change. Here is the change and it pertains to, so they do some textual analysis. So they might say it's a change to money laundering because they, they look at the name of the law or they look at the body of the law. They don't tell you what you should do as a result of it. All they do is say it's changed. What we're doing is taking the outcome of that change and then doing something about it behind the corporate firewall. That, that's fundamentally what we do. But that supply chain, the means by which that interchange happens is is arbitrary and effectively they're all bespoke linkages or people subscribe to a particular information system by using this standardized form of change control we can actually enable those companies to share the change in their advice in a standardized format just like reference data so that we create a supply chain of changed advice and even changed controls so people can define their controls in the abstract so that that's fed into that's then fed into the um, that's then fed into a, a corporate's change. 
so that's the change we're making is we're not just doing the, la the last mile of binding the regulation to a control. We're actually enabling a supply chain of cha standardized change notification to controls. And that, that's the fundamental, that's the fundamental other change we do. Okay, just, just one last question. Let's imagine we can move from this micro atomic level to this macro process supply chain uh, model and digitize regulatory compliance. Who would be most impacted by that process? Would it be lawyers? Would it be consultants? Would it be reg tech vendors? Who, who are likely to be the winners and, and the losers from that process of genuine digital transformation in the financial services industries, compliance procedures, value chains, supply chains? So, so we've done some thinking about this and, and we, we, our current view is that the people who would be most impacted are people like articled clerks in law firms. So the people who are doing fairly low level, shall we say, I don't like to use the term menial, but actually fairly, you know, not particularly interesting work on the regulation. So they're just noting it. You know, almost in some cases, they print the thing off red pen it and then give it to the senior partner in the law firm. Uh, and that's the same actually in consulting firms. So we actually think that the senior practitioners are not affected because they still got to give thought to what it means. But we think that the, the, the sort of more clerical paperwork type jobs will disappear, um, but more people will be involved in the automation supply chain. Um, the way to think about it is actually to look at um, things like cars. If you, if you actually look at the car that you have, yeah, um, the chassis is shared between probably 10 models in that, that car. The gearbox does, isn't made by the manufacturer. The software in the gearbox isn't even made by the same manufacturer who makes the gearbox. There is a whole outsourced componentized supply chain in there that comes together in different, you know, different colors and sizes using these components to make things happen. Um, and that's what we believe will happen with regulation. That it will end up like the software supply chain for many embedded systems that we have today. Is that how you see the future of regtechs as components in a much more complicated vehicle that is parts of a of a larger whole? So, so, so certainly for the actual delivery of regulations, yes. For the compliance with particular things like a particular form of transaction reporting or risk reporting where you have to do risk aggregation or transaction aggregation. I always see that as kind of classic BI um, database munging and there will always be specialist forms of things or we need another field on a trade that has some more information. And that, that to me is, is classic data processing. I don't see that as being particularly clever um, clearly, there will be other things like surveillance, where surveillance systems, you know, have more intelligent looking at, you know, suspicious transactions and things. But that's surveillance is not regulation. Regulation asks you to perform surveillance, so it means you must have a surveillance system with certain capabilities. But it's not surveillance itself. So what you'll see is a series of vendors who provide what we call evidence. And then, then there's the legal flow I've talked about, which is what I call the arguments and the, the, how we, the route to evidence, how we determine what evidence is required. 
And that's how I think the market will shake out. Now, we've already got those evidence systems. We have the surveillance systems. We have the transaction reporting systems. So they will continue to exist. Although if you look carefully, you'll notice the market has consolidated in the last year. So actually, there's, there are fewer players in the market now because there's no, nothing particularly new. Or Well, there is some new things coming up, but there's no significant implementation to be done now. Now it's optimization. So the reg tech firms that are going to survive are those which are either in the evidence business or in the uh, route to evidence business. Would that be right? That's very quickly. Right. Yeah, that's the way. Rupert Brown, thank you very much. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much, Dominic. Thank you.